The world is watching as the Taliban retakes Afghanistan. In America, opinions on who is to blame and what should have been done are being shared everywhere. I'm Dwayne Lester, and in this Insight to Action, I talk with John Burns and Russ Dernstein, both with Concerned Veterans for America. They explain why this all happened, the reality of the situation in Afghanistan, and why veterans who serve there shouldn't feel like it was all for nothing. Here we go. Motions are running high as the United States withdraws from Afghanistan. Joining me today, John Burns and Russ Sternstein, both with Concerns Veterans for America. I see John been doing a lot of media hits. John, tell me, uh, tell me first your thoughts about what's going on over there right now. I mean, there's so much to unpack with that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will tell you. I will tell you what I've been telling people is it, it, it's it's hard to watch. Right. This is sad. Um, it's it's shocking. It's disappointing. But but in a lot of ways, it's not surprising. And while this is hard to watch and why there are a lot of people taking a lot of emotional content from this, very disappointed, pointing to it as a, a failure of America overall. My big takeaway is, is this just kind of proves that this was a bad idea to engage in nation building in Afghanistan. We, we did it for almost 20 years uh, and their government with 18 months notice that we were getting out was not able to stand up and do the right thing and 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 make themselves competent enough to govern the country and hold off the Taliban. How many tours did you do in Afghanistan? I did one tour in Afghanistan back in 2008 about nine and a half months or so there and I did a tour in Iraq as well so you know I'm pretty familiar with the Mideast and of course you know I was a I was a a responder on 9-11 with the National Guard in New York City back in 2001. So so the things that have gone on in Afghanistan have been very, very important to me since since October of 2001 when we first went there. So having been on the ground there, I mean, what are your personal thoughts as you watch this? Like I said, it's sad. I mean, there, there were good men that I worked with there that I, I, I'm concerned about, um, you know, they, them and their families. Uh, it's hard, but, you know, everyone that I work with, and I know this is true of every American service person, you know, at the, at the, the operational level, the sergeants, the, the privates, the captains, the lieutenants, the, the, the first sergeants, every one of us did our best. Right? We did what we could for the, Amer- for, the, for the Afghan people. We did it for the American people, but we did it with the Afghan people in Afghanistan, trying to make their government, their situation better. And after 20 years it was time for them to step up and take the job over. What are your thoughts about those who are out there right now blaming this all on Biden, saying this is all Biden's fault? Is it is it truly all his fault, or is this something that, that we shouldn't have, like you said, shouldn't have been involved in, and there was really, this was how it was going to end the whole time? You know, I mean, I, I don't think this is all Biden's fault at all. I mean, first of all, I think the, the, the majority of the blame, like as I placed it, really falls mainly on the Afghan leadership who has known this day is coming for 20 years. They certainly have known it's coming for the last 18 months, and yet they continue to behave as if we would be there forever. I think there's plenty of other blame to, to go around. I think policymakers going back to 2000, especially to 2002 and 2003, to, to try and turn Afghanistan into a 
you know, a Western-style democracy and build a nation around a central idea of Afghanistan, which has been a historically problematic concept. That was bad policy back then. You know, the, I think the exception I, I would make to the, what I said about American servicemen and women is that some of the, the, the general core of uh, America's se America's senior leadership in the military, Pentagon generals, three stars, four stars, and admirals, um, they, they, you know, they've seen this coming, um, but they, nobody wanted it to be on their watch. So they've been, you know, if you read the Afghan papers, they've been straight up lying to the American people for a good part of the last 20 years, just not presenting the whole truth about what was going on there. They, they, they've known, and this is the reason that they resisted um, withdrawing from Afghanistan, you know, every iteration is they've known that this was probably what was going to happen. And nobody wanted it to be, well, they were the guy, you know, in charge of Afghanistan or the guy in charge of the Pentagon or the guy in charge of the military. I don't have the... You know, the president has taken go, go a ahead, lot Russ. of... Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay, go ahead. I was going to say, the president has taken a lot of criticism for the execution of what's happened, but I think he also deserves a lot of credit for having the, the resolve, the, the, the backbone to double down and say, look, that we could not stay forever. We had to do this, um, and I think he needs to be given credit for that. I think it's possible to... Uh, after action report over after it's over look at how it could have been executed uh, differently and it's totally I think realistic to praise and criticize at the same time and where he deserves praise is clearly articulating in the middle of something that was ugly and painful uh, this was the right thing to do and this is why we did it you know one of his quotes that I read that I thought was very profound I'm gonna share that right now he said Here's what I believe to my core. It is wrong to order American troops to step up when Afghanistan's own armed forces would not. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war? That's, that's a powerful statement. That is a very powerful statement, Dwayne. And I, I will tell you, you know, I've been thinking about, even before he said that yesterday, um, I've been thinking about it and, and I've been kind of contextualizing it in terms of my nephew, who is 14 or so years old, uh, and he, like his uncle, um, has you know consistently been interested in the military. You know, loved uh, the military uniform I got him for his sixth Christmas. Uh, you know, I mean, dressed up and ran around the house in it. He's always wanted to to follow in my footsteps, and I don't want him following in my footsteps to be engaged in a civil war in Afghanistan where he could die when he's 18 or 20. Uh, because we just didn't have the, the, the intestinal fortitude to do the right thing for the American people. You know, I don't have the, the background that you all do in, in foreign policy. I haven't read the books that you all have read. I, I don't have the experiences you have. But one thing I have read, and I read this back in probably 2003, 2004, um, Natan Sharansky's The Case for Democracy. I don't know if you've heard this one or read this one. I remember George W. Bush having a copy of this, and I thought, I want to read that too. And the premise here, basically, if I remember correctly, is that democracies don't go to war with one another, and that's why we want to establish democracies across the Middle East. That was the plan. It doesn't seem to have worked. I, I, I mean, I'm not being flippant here, but it doesn't, it doesn't look like it works. 
And for for the for the erudite among us, uh, Nathan Sharansky was quoting Immanuel Kant, who was the progenitor of the democratic peace theory uh, way back at the end of the Enlightenment, um, when there weren't a whole lot of democracies around. Um, and it's mostly proved true. I mean, there are some exceptions, you know, um, especially especially you know in the 1800s, there were as democracy was still a nascent thing in places like Great Britain and France. There were some incidents. Obviously, the American Civil War was you know, purportedly a democracy against a democracy, according to some Southern revisionists. But but it's generally true. The problem is, is that democracy is is not, it's like an organ transplant. You know, you have to have a host that is willing to accept it, right? If, if the antibodies in the culture are not uh, acceptable, uh, are not open to that insertion, then it's not going to work. And that's something we saw with Democracy Project in the Middle East. And I'll be honest, I, you know, when I was in Iraq in 2004 and we were trying to build democracy there, and it was growing in other places. You know, the Arab Spring throughout the, the, the late aughts, I, I was very, you know, hopeful of it. But we've seen much of that get rolled back. You saw what happened in Egypt and the rest of North Africa. Um, you know, you, you saw what happened in Iraq. I mean, it, I wouldn't call Iraq a democracy today. Um, and Afghanistan, uh, you know, again, we spent 20 years mentoring at every level, at the, at the platoon level with police and and with, with soldiers, we spent years with State Department and, and, you know, other nations, you know, doing political mentorship, trying to, trying to bring the entire Afghan kind of governing class into alignment with our values. And at the end of the day, all they wanted to do was line their own pockets. I and mean, one of the reasons that, that soldiers turned and ran over the weekend and just abandoned their posts was many of them weren't getting paid because 20 years in, their commanders were still stealing all or most of their pay. I think if you look at the um, difference between South Korea and South Vietnam, when it comes to self-governance, uh, whatever form of democracy takes place, either in a republic or a parliamentary system, the missing ingredient for uh, countries where democracy doesn't work is a, a desire for freedom that supersedes their desire for security or wealth. And the great democracies of the world that um, natural law that people embrace, that they have certain unalienable rights, that those freedoms that they have that comes from those rights are worth sacrificing their own security, safety, or even lives for. And you cannot transplant that embrace of um, freedom into people's hearts. They have it or they don't. And those that don't have it, nation building is not a solution uh, to install democracy. There are a lot of possible repercussions uh, from this that are being talked about. I just saw uh, Senator Tom Cotton on Twitter saying that uh, America's enemies were watching the weakness that he called out of uh, Afghanistan, and that made it dangerous. What do you say to those who are saying something like that, that this shows that America is weak and can't be trusted? I say that they're wrong. It's real simple. America is going to act in our national interest, and our enemies will take that message, our enemies, our challengers, they'll take that message away from us. We, what message do we send to, to, to those out there who wish us harm that we will spend 20 years engaged in something that's not our, in our national interest, that we won't focus on the important things, that we will, um, you know, we will, will support any government um, that says that we owe them something, no matter how much it costs America, 
while keep, while while losing track of of the real important issues, right? I don't think that you know people have talked about China and Russia and, and Iran taking the wrong message from this. I don't think they're going to take the wrong message from this at all. They're going to see that we're actually going to focus on our national interest from now on and not be distracted. And I think that's important. I think that's a real message. In terms of allies, you know, oh, can allies trust us? Well, allies should always trust us to act in our national interest, right? I mean, we want to send message to those who would ally with us and become, you know, either either bad actors or become free riders. We want to let them know that, you know, that, that allying with America isn't an open check, that, that you can spend our treasure and the blood of our youth for forever and ever uh, just because you call yourself our ally. I'm also seeing a lot of my uh, my friends who served like you. They served in Afghanistan, and they're asking themselves, "Was this all for nothing?" How do you respond to those out there who are who are seeing this as basically a waste of their time, or even worse, a, a disrespect of their their service? First of all, you know, we honor the service because I, I, I was there. I honor the service of everyone who served there. Right? We we did our best. We put in an honest effort to help the Afghan people. There's nothing to be ashamed of in that. We made a decision in 2001 to go into Afghanistan and overthrow the Taliban and hunt down al-Qaeda because it was the right thing to do after that country served as a base of operations to attack the U.S. homeland, the U.S. soil. Every soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman who I served with and, and the c- civilian employees who worked over there, they did their level best. And they, they should continue to feel proud of what they did. It's not their fault that there was a bad policy in place, and it took it took a long time for the American people to come around to what a bad policy this was. <clears throat> you know, Americans supported the, the war in Afghanistan in 2001, 2002, overwhelmingly. <clears throat> After 20 years, though, we've gotten to a point where a majority of Americans and, and over two-thirds of veterans realized that this war was a bad idea. You get to that point, and it's just hard to, you know, it's like a divorce, right? You know it's time to end it. It doesn't mean it's not going to hurt going through it. No one for a second should think that we did not win this war. We did everything we set out to do all the way up to the point of um, killing uh, uh, bin Laden. And so that part of it, we absolutely have to embrace and take on as not wasting our time, our blood, our treasure, our talent. It's the 10 years since then, as John was saying, that you know obviously we engaged in something beyond winning on the battlefield, beyond winning the war, beyond um, delivering a sense of uh, justice and deterrence. Um, I don't think there's a country in the world that believes they can attack the United States and not suffer the kind of um, uh, military disaster that we can impose upon a country like we did Afghanistan. That part of it is what brings solace uh, to many of those that have sacrificed, including my son and others uh, who, who have spent you know, his entire 20-year or 19-year career has been engaged in a war, either in Iraq or Afghanistan. So there is some um, dividing that you have to do in your heart, but we should never waste that part of that sense of sacrifice and say, well, the whole thing was for nothing, because that absolutely is not true. When you watch the the video of those C-130s rolling down the, the runway and the Afghan people who are mobbing them when you see the bodies fall. What do you say to those who say we're obligated to stay because those people need us? I'm reminded, I was 12 years old when uh, we evacuated Saigon and watching um, our South Vietnamese uh, friends holding on to the uh, skids of the helicopters as they departed. It is absolutely emotionally heartbreaking to see that. 
And it absolutely proves that no matter where you are in the world, there's people who, you know, who need our presence. However, the point becomes either we have to stay forever or we have to leave. And so unfortunately, the day, if we're not going to stay forever, I don't know anybody that says we should stay forever, not one person. I, I guess there could be. I don't know who they are. But if it's time to leave, this is going to happen. Even if it had happened slower, you were going to have that kind of heartbreak. This just happened on such a large scale that it's emotionally overwhelming. And uh, I don't for a second want to discount how painful that is to watch. And when you see one person suffer at the hands of another, it just enrages us. And uh, But it cannot take away from the fact that we simply cannot stay forever. Yeah, I mean, I, I have folks in Afghanistan that, that I worked with. Um, I've, I've been in touch with, you know, with folks on the CVA team who were in touch with folks over there. I've been in touch with folks that I served with who were in touch with folks over there. You know, my, my team worked pretty hard um, even before, long before this, to get the, the, the translators and the other civil, civilian um, supporters who, who worked with us in Afghanistan to get as many of them as we could, immigrant visas, over the last um, 10 years or so. Uh, it's hard to, to know that that's happening to people that you worked with. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not the job of my nephew or, or Russ's sons or, or Dwayne or your kids when they, when they turn of age to, to, to hold that country together forever. You know, I wouldn't trade the life of my nephew or the life of one of your kids for another 10 years of bad foreign policy. Uh, this is just, it, it's one of those things we gave the Afghan people 20 years. We gave them every tool that, that we had at our disposal. We gave their leadership every opportunity to step up and do the right thing. And they continue to act like they had this insurance policy that their Uncle Sam was just going to continue to prop them up and allow them to, to, to steal from their people and steal from their country without developing competence at leading, without developing competence at governing, without developing competence at, at you know, at fighting. And it, it, it's not that, you know, America at some point, you know, we just had to draw the line. And like Russ said, whether it was a year more, five years more, 10 years more, you know, the Taliban is an organized, you know, force and they have a central organizing principle that they, they strongly believe in. And the, the option in Afghanistan was never between, you know, Western style democracy and theocracy. It was always between theocracy and an incompetent kleptocracy that wouldn't be able to stand up to it. Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And there are already the similarities being made to the photos we see coming out of Afghanistan to what Russ talked about earlier, Saigon. It seems that we are relearning lessons from history again. What do you see, and to close this out, what do you see as the lesson we should not forget from 20 years in Afghanistan? The lesson that, that I take away from this is when you go into a foreign country, and you try to change its governing culture with the U.S. military or with the military, um, you're, you really need to think about that not just twice but three or four times because historically that's a really hard thing to do. Um, you know, you mentioned Vietnam, you know, Afghanistan. Um, we struggled with it in Iraq, a little more successful there in some ways, but, but it was a struggle. The Russians struggled with trying to reinvent Afghanistan into a socialist culture when it's, it's essentially an Islamic culture. They tried, and, and a tribal one at that, right, without, without a kind of a central national 
idea the way other countries have it. So when you go into a country and you're going to try and change its its culture, change its government so that it is a Western-style democracy, and, and you're going to use the military to do it, you really need to look at history and say, is this possible? Is this doable in this culture? Or is there a better foreign policy, a better way to handle this situation, uh, aside from trying to build a democratic nation out of raw material that's not suitable for it? You know, one of our main missions at Concerned Veterans for America is to change the course of American foreign policy. And the short, simple answer is until we move to a foreign policy that embraces realism and restraint. And if you look at the last 50 years post-Vietnam, probably the Reagan era was as closest to realism and restraint that we've been in. Until we roll back 30 years of interventionist and nation building as our mindset and we don't engage our elected officials and AUMFs in a, in a timely manner. Um, that If we haven't learned that lesson after Afghanistan, I don't know what it's gonna take for us to learn it. I think we're learning it. I think Americans are embracing realism and restraint. And I think the day is not far around the corner. We really truly reform America's foreign policy. And I, I look forward to that day. And I think it's very possible and not very far down the road is my hope. Thanks again to John and Russ for taking the time to talk with me today about Afghanistan. And if you have any questions about this issue or any of the other issues we've talked about on Insight to Action, please send me an email at i2a at afphq.org. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.